I don't normally read the want ads in the newspaper, uh, but I had a little time yesterday morning, so I was reading the ads. and There was a personal ad um, in which the family of a young girl who was murdered 16 years ago was there. I don't know if you saw it. Um, the Gardner family's daughter had been murdered 16 years ago. Maybe, maybe yesterday was the anniversary. I don't remember, but... Excuse <coughs> me. I feel really powerful when I put this on. The heavens and the earth shake at my voice. Um, what, what struck me was uh, 16 years later, they're still feeling the loss. You know, she was there, loved by them, and she's gone. There's this sense of suffering and separation, and it just kind of keeps going on. You want me to grab the other mic, Eric? We're good? Okay. Um, Unlooked for suffering and loss. I happened to be listening to National Public Radio last week, too, and I didn't catch all of it, so I kind of got in on the middle, but it was a young woman who was talking to some coach. I don't know if this was a university or a high school, who was a Christian, was a committed Christian, and somehow NPR is interacting with this young gal and this coach on a radio interview, and this young gal on the line had had a friend who got cancer her age, late teens, maybe early 20s, and died. And it's shaken up this young woman's world. And so she's asking this Christian coach, uh, not only why did my young friend get cancer, but then having got it, why did she die when others, you know, get treatment and recover? And we'll talk about some of the same things the coach talked about this morning here in a bit, but it's that same sense of there's tragedy, there's suffering, and there's loss. You probably remember, too, two years ago in another week or so, it's the anniversary of the Greensburg tornado. You know, if you look at pictures, if you were bowling, you know, and you put a, a bowling ball right down the middle and you get a strike, that's sort of what Greensburg had looked like where the F5 tornado comes through. I mean, it, it split this, the town as, as much down the middle as it could have. It destroys everything and killed 11 people at the same time. And if you're in Greensburg at the time or you know people or you have family or relatives there, you're probably asking, Lord, why did that tornado have to go through that town right perfectly dead center at that time? Why are those people dead? Why did this happen? Or maybe not as life and death threatening, but if you're an employee in the last year or so at Goodyear or Ford or GM or in the housing industries or SAIG, whatever, uh, maybe you're looking at your life, you had plans, your finances have gone in the hole, you've lost your job, you know, everything that you thought was going to happen, everything good is on hold and you're reeling wondering what's going on. When life throws us for a loop, what do we do with that? And what do we make of that? When we lose things we treasure, how do we cope with that? And what do we do with the why questions? You know, if life's going well, we're happy, we go along, we live sort of the uninspected life. Everything's okay. But when everything falls out, then all of a sudden we're asking questions. Questions like, why isn't everything okay? Or why is there suffering? 
or why am I suffering? The big questions, the why questions. And since those questions generally treat things like the way this world is, the way things work in the world we live in, then the questions go back to things like, is there really a God? And if there is really a God, is He good? And if He is good, how can He let these things happen? I want to look at uh, the topic briefly this morning of suffering and make a little bit of sense out of suffering in general. I confess on the front end I'm going to talk more about a perspective to have for life than I will the redemptive elements of suffering God makes use of. But specifically, I hope that we can refine... Sorry. Sorry. Our expectations related to suffering. Um, This touches a much bigger issue, too, which is evil. Why is there evil? Why is the universe, the world, the cosmos as it is? Um, We're not going to look at that at all this morning. Uh, Much narrower perspective. Everybody experiences suffering. Uh, If you want a great book to read on this, Peter Kreeft, or Kreeft, depending on how you pronounce his last name, wrote a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering. It's one of the best books I've ever read on this. One of his bottom lines is this. Suffering is the difference between my expectation and my reality. Suffering is the difference between what I want and what I get. And when he's talking about this kind of suffering, he's not saying if I take a hammer and hit my thumb and I have pain, that's a different kind of suffering. But on the bigger life issues, suffering equals the difference, the disparity between what my expectation is for life and then what I really get. That's suffering. A guy in the Old Testament who knew something about suffering was Job. And he says this, a couple things out of Job. 5 verse 7 says, uh, Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. This was a verse my dad used to quote semi-regularly. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That is as surely as if you start a fire, the flames and the sparks go up. Just as surely man on the earth is born for trouble. If you're alive on planet earth, you can guarantee this, you're going to experience trouble. Later in Job 24.12, I quoted this to a guy once. He says, how would you like this as your life verse? From the city men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out. This is in the midst of Job's suffering. And part of his commentary on life is, in the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out. But that's our experience, suffering. You know, not only is there suffering in the world, but there's frustration, um, futility. Listen to what Solomon had to say about this in Ecclesiastes 2 and 4. And by the way, the guy that's writing this, In his day, he's the wisest man in the world, of course. He's the richest man in the world. If you can get it on the planet, he's got it. If you can make your dreams come true, he can make his dreams come true. But listen to what he still said. As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity or futility. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as the coming days all will be forgotten. 
and how the wise man and the fool alike die. We'll all be forgotten and we'll all die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. He goes on in chapter 4 and says, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, they had the power to oppress, but no one to comfort them either. The oppressed and the oppressor both futile as far as having any real comfort. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Very encouraging. But better than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Does that strike you? This is Solomon. Wise guy, all the power, all the wealth, all the fun you can have in life. And this is what he says. There is both suffering and futility in the lives we live on this planet we call earth. And think of this. If righteous Job and if wise Solomon, if righteous Job suffered and wise Solomon was frustrated, why would we think that our lives wouldn't carry the same experiences? Righteousness didn't spare Job suffering and wisdom didn't spare Solomon this sense of vanity or futility. Why do we develop an expectation that our lives will be relatively free of death or the emptiness and apparent futility that Solomon described? And guys, the reason I'm bringing this up, we have suffering in the church, unlooked for health issues that we've been praying about, happy endings right now, which is great. But I'm convinced that Americans and Christians in the West entertain a view of life that is biblically and practically deficient. And it's about this area of suffering. And because we live in a time and a place where there's relative wealth, and we've got medicines that extend life, which is, this is all good, and we've got lots of food, we end up fooling ourselves about the kind of world we live in and what our real expectations should be. So that when the bottom falls out for one of us, God's chosen, God's elect, an American Christian, uh, suddenly our world goes spinning and we wonder what the deal is. And we suffer. And I think at this level, we suffer needlessly. And it's because at the bottom, at the, the bottom line, at the end of the day, we've got an expectation that is entirely unbiblical, that's devoid, divorced from reality, that we have sort of a fairy tale mentality in our mind so that when something really bad happens, we're reeling and we are stumbled in our faith. And I think Christians need to get a handle, Christians in the United States and in the West, this prosperous time of life we live in, prosperous, prosperous areas of the world we live in, we need to get a grip and remind ourselves that suffering and frustration, the fruits of sin and death, that is still part of our world. It's an integral part of our world. And if we don't have this, if we're not forearmed, forewarned in our minds about this, When the bottom falls out and when trouble comes knocking, and it will, we end up reeling, wondering where's God when God hasn't changed. It's just that some of the reality of life in this world has caught up with us and we don't know what to do with it. And I'm suggesting this morning that if we know what the Scripture says about life 
and these elements of frustration and death that are part of everyone's life on this earth that will be ready and will be prepared and will have biblical wisdom to treat these things and see them as they are instead of being knocked over spiritually wondering what happened and, and where did God go and why is this happening to me. Let me give you two very short fictional examples. <clears throat> young couple in Topeka, Kansas fall in love and marry. And life is beautiful. And, you know, he's smart and successful. She's lovely and witty and everything's all that it should be, nothing that it shouldn't be. They want kids, you know, so they start trying to have kids. They have kids. They have a child, a little girl. And, and she's the sunshine of the, their life. She's the center of their constellation of happiness. And all is great. All is blessed. And, and then one day she gets sick. And she gets sicker. And so they go to doctors. You know, this is the way we'd all do. And you get the tests and you go to the hospital. And some have gone through this just recently. And the worst is confirmed and the little one has cancer. And so mom and dad pray, of course. They, they get the latest treatment. They get everything that can be done. And the little child dies. And so the parents, this is fairly typical. This is entirely fictional, but this is fairly typical. The parents are reeling, right? Because life was perfect. And now it's not. And what's the difference? How do we get from perfect to not perfect? What do I do with that? So the parents become inconsolable. They blame doctors. They blame medicine. They blame each other. This is routinely what happens. And of course, last, who do they blame? They blame God. Because God has let them down. So on one hand, the God they prayed to and thanked for that little girl when she's gone now... God becomes the object of their dissatisfaction. God is the cause for the problems in their life instead of the solution. God has, if you will, fallen from grace because He's not done and answered their prayers as they asked. They lose a little girl and their life spiritually, as it were, ends. Now contrast that with this scenario, another, another fictional account. A woman in a third world country with a husband who's dying of a wasting disease gets pregnant even though she's praying not to. And of course, she doesn't have enough money for nutritional meals and she eventually delivers a poor, unhealthy little baby who also dies. And she buries that little baby next to her other buried babies and she thanks God that that little baby died and doesn't have to go through the hard life that it would otherwise have in her corner of the world. On one hand, the scenarios are sort of the same. Parents get pregnant, give birth to children who die. But the, the way they view those events is entirely different. And if you ask the question, why is that? The only thing that's really different, big picture different, is their expectations. Because one family has this expectation, this picture of life, that life is a supermarket full of delicious options. And the other has an expectation that life is hard and then you die. But it's the expectations that determine how they see those events and how they look at God after they transpire. What is our expectation? Big picture. How do we see life? Because these questions almost always lead to questioning God about how He's running things, to be fair to God, which is a small courtesy, I think, at least, we should at least get our own thoughts in order. Many of the troubles we have in viewing life or kind of adjusting, getting our minds wrapped around the way things happen and, and what happens is that we're lazy thinkers. We don't think well. We don't discipline our minds to see where do my thoughts carry me. 
Does, does what I'm thinking and does what I believe, does it make sense? Have I thought about it long enough, deep enough, carried the inferences far enough to say it makes sense or not? <clears throat> Sometimes the answers to those vexing questions are simple. They're just not the ones we want. You go back to the question or the example of the little girl who dies of cancer. Competition from the rain here. Um, let's say that you pray for your daughter and she gets better. And she survives cancer, she lives, and she grows up, and she falls in love, and she marries, and she has children, and she raises a family, and she grows old, and then what? And then she dies, right? So no matter where this equation goes, that person dies. They die. So then the question becomes, okay, well then, why is there death in the world? Why do people die? And why will the people that I know and love die. I got an email this morning, and I saw in the news this morning, a uh, friend of a relative or a relative of a friend was found dead on the KU campus, I think, this morning. <coughs> I don't know any, excuse me, <coughs> sorry, I don't know any more about it than that, but somebody's life is topsy-turvy because their child or sibling or friend died. Where does that come from? Why is life so hard? Why can't things work out more often? Why am I not what I want to be or thought I would be? Or why is my life not all that I thought it should be? You know, <clears throat> the coach on the national public radio interview, he said what, basically what I'm telling you here. And I confess, when he said it, I thought it sounds a little hollow. Sounds a little deficient. But this is the bottom line. The simple answer is not simplistic. Why is there sin, death, frustration, and futility in the world? It's because there's sin. It's because we live in a sinful world in which our parents sin. And so that element of death that comes from sin, it's part and parcel of everything that occurs on this earth. So to that first world that God created and said everything was good, Adam and Eve are there in the garden, only one prohibition, Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat you will surely die. I know Adam didn't know everything this meant. He knew God said don't do something. He had no way he could, he could know all the implications of you will die, what that would mean. Why is there death in the world? Because we, in our parents, <clears throat> sinned. And God said, if you do this, you'll get death. You don't know all the way it looks. You don't know all the ramifications. It's not good. You want to avoid it. Don't do it. There's sin in the world today because, or there's death in the world today because of sin. Now, the gal on the radio interview, she, she wondered if the coach was saying, your friend sinned. God gave the friend cancer because of her sin. And the coach is like, no, no, no. We're born into a sinful world in which death is the norm. And unfortunately, your friend experienced that sooner instead of later. Now, all of us sin. I'm not saying we don't. But much of the element of death and futility that we experience in our life is not because we have inherently done something wrong or sinful or deficient. It's just because that's the dynamic of life on this earth. Well, what about futility? 
Genesis 3.17, after Adam and Eve sin, God comes to them and He says this, Because you've listened to the voice, Adam, of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, Don't eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Guys, this is the futility of life. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's futility. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. To return to the ground because from it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Wow. Quite a rain. Can you guys hear okay? <clears throat> so if I say, why is there death in the world? It's because of sin. And if I say, why is there frustration and vanity and futility in all that I do on this earth? It's because God couldn't leave a perfect world for an imperfect creature. It wasn't going to happen. So you and I experience, woven into the fabric of everything we do on this earth, we experience death and we experience futility because of sin. Simple answer, but not simplistic. So... When we think about life and we plan our happy futures and we develop our expectation about what's going to come and what it'll look like, we need to remember this, that this world is hardwired for death and futility. And it will touch everything you do. And the seeds of death and futility are in every element of your life and even as Christians and even in your Christian work and labor. Sin and death and futility, it's all a part of it. You can't get away from it as long as you're in this planet on this earth. <clears throat> if we entertain a view of life that doesn't take these things into into the balance, that sin and death, frustration and futility are part of my life on the earth. We are not connected to reality. And this is my concern, that when the effects of sin, death, or frustration and futility, when they touch something in our life, and we think that's not coming, we're staggered and we are scandalized, we are stumbled in our faith. And I'll bet everybody here knows somebody who said they were a Christian, they walked with Christ, and something happened in their life, and they said, forget it, it's not true, I'm moving on to greener pastures, because this thing doesn't work. This isn't the way it is. To understand that the world we live in is tainted by sin, death, frustration, futility, this is to be connected to reality. This is to understand the way things really are. And so, with that in my mind, I understand when it comes up, God hasn't changed. The world hasn't changed. This is what I should and can expect. Now, it was just two weeks ago that we celebrated Christ's resurrection, right? Easter Sunday, two weeks ago. And this probably sounds like there is no resurrection. <clears throat> that all is death and futility. <clears throat> yeah, um... We're, we are not disavowing the resurrection or Easter Sunday at all when we say this. And Jesus did conquer sin and death. But where's Jesus today? Physically, He's not here. He's at the right hand of God in heaven, 
uh, ruling as he sees fit. I've never had this kind of competition ever, ever, ever. That's quite a downpour. Um, We live in between Resurrection Sunday and the second coming of Christ. And so while Christ has, if you will, sown the seeds of all His future glory and life to conquer death in its totality, that has not happened yet. And it won't happen until Christ comes to the earth. And the Scriptures talk about the rule of Messiah on the earth as a blessed age in which the effects of sin and death and futility will be mitigated. And then it talks about a new heaven and a new earth where all of that will be gone forever. But we do not live in that world today. And Christ has not come to the earth again. He has not claimed His throne here. So those elements of frustration and death, they are in every human life on this earth and will be till Christ comes back and makes the earth His own. Now, if you think because you're a Christian you avoid suffering and futility, you're mistaken what you actually get is you get more. So as a Christian, you not only suffer the normal frustration and futility of life and death, you know, in your life, in your friends' and relatives' lives, but guys, you also add the additional element of suffering because you're a Christian. So we support Gospel for Asia and Voice of the Martyrs. And those groups, among other things, they help persecuted Christians who are suffering because they're Christians in Muslim, communist, and primarily Hindu nations. So if you're a Christian in that part of the world, you not only don't avoid suffering and death, you get more because you're a Christian, not less. Peter said this in 1 Pete 12, or 4.12, <clears throat> And you know, the early church, all the early church, those areas of the Roman world, they got hammered. When you read the kind of persecution and the suffering the early church went through, it's staggering. It's, it's hard to imagine. So you can imagine for those early Christians, they're, they're wondering too, what's going on? We didn't think it'd be like this. So Peter says to them, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Pete says this shouldn't be surprising and it's not strange in the sense that it's unexpected. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. What you're experiencing is predictable. This again goes to that thing about expectation. If I think as a Christian, and by the way, a lot of evangelizing um, I think is entirely biblically erroneous. When you approach people and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life, be careful. If you try and sell that gospel in, uh, in the 1040 window, it doesn't, it doesn't work. If you're a Christian in the Muslim world and you say, Jesus' plan for my life is, is roses and uh, grocery stores, and they know that to claim Christ publicly is a death sentence, guys, it doesn't work. God does love you. He does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it could be hell on earth here till you get to that wonderful life in eternity. Now, the truth is, again, in the West, most of us experience lots of good things in life. So we might take this a little lightly, but 
God's wonderful plan for your life, you might look at and say, that's not quite the plan I envisioned, Lord. So we need to be careful when we tell other people that Jesus will solve all their problems in life. That, that is not the gospel. Be, so be careful with that. Peter says it's not surprising what's going on in your life. This is not surprising. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. If we understand that suffering and death are inherently part of life on this earth, it not only keeps us from expectations that are sure to be disappointed, but perhaps as importantly, it allows us to be more thankful for the good things and the graces in our lives because we understand that they are not the norm in this kingdom on the earth. Let me just repeat this too. This is the flip side. If I know that suffering and frustration and futility are the norm on earth, then when it happens to me, I'm not surprised and I'm prepared, I'm ready. But the flip side is also this. Think of this. If I realize that futility is a normal part of life on the earth and death, then all the good things have this additional savor or sweetness or I can be additionally thankful for them because I realize this is sort of the exception. That in a world ruled by death and futility, I get to taste all these good things, good foods, good fellowship. I get to experience all these graces and good things from God. They should become all the more sweet, all the more savory for us when we realize the setting in which we get to appreciate and enjoy them. It changes our outlook both directions. It prepares us for suffering on one hand, but it makes us even more thankful for the good things we experience while we're here on the other. Also, be careful of this. Our, our temptation, I, this is almost stupid, but <clears throat> our dog was scratching the other night. She's got these terrible allergies. And <clears throat> she is so beside herself itching that she is literally looking for places to hide from herself because she can't scratch enough. <clears throat> and when I was sleeping the other night, I was wakened two times. She's on another floor above me. And I hear her kennel rocking on the floor. She's scratching herself. And I'm praying. Seriously, Lord, would you help that poor, poor dog? Because she's just miserable. She's suffering. And, and there's really not much we can do for her right now. I'm, I'm praying. And, <clears throat> and I'm tempted to think, this is kind of a raw deal for her, Lord. You know how our thoughts go. God, you could change this. If you wanted to make this better, you could wave your magic wand and everything would change. And so we sort of say to God, go ahead, wave the wand and, and you'll be okay with me. Make it all better. And God, you know, typically doesn't wave the magic wand. And typically we live through those periods of suffering. So then we're thinking, God, you're less than good or you're less than fair at some basic level. But think about this. <clears throat> Jesus on the cross, you know, so much of theology gets back to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It's kind of the center of all, not only history, but theology. <clears throat> if you think God doesn't know or doesn't care, just think about this or remember this. An omnipotent God, omnipresent, he has feelings that are not limited like ours. Uh, think about this for just a second. Our ability to experience is predicated on, 
on our senses and our understanding. So that if we experience suffering, the degree to which we experience suffering is limited by our ability to understand it and to feel it. So, now what if you're an omnipotent God, though? Omnipresent, eternal. You know what that would mean? That your experience of something is equal to your stature. So that if you experience suffering, it would be suffering on a level no human could ever understand, comprehend, or enter into, right? And the same would be true on joy, which is why God's the most joyful creature in the universe. But it also means that God can experience suffering in a way you and I never can. Thank God. So go back to Christ on the cross. God the Father forsakes His Son. God's perfect love. The Trinity had been in union, perfect union, not in time but through all eternity, timelessness. And then at this one moment in time, a God who can perfectly love, perfectly feel, cuts Himself off from the greatest object of His affection and love and desire. So God the Father has experienced suffering and death in ways you and I never will. So we can't accuse God the Father of not knowing what we're going through. It doesn't make sense. Because we have no, no concept of God's experience of suffering and death with His Son on the cross made sin for us. But also on Jesus' side, Jesus comes down in the incarnation. He walks the same earth we walk. Eats the same food, gets tired, gets hungry, gets thirsty. You know, Isaiah says uh, he was a man acquainted, sorry, acquainted with grief. He bore our burdens. And then he on the cross, he had always done the things that pleased his father. And his father forsakes him. And he takes on your sin and mine. No one on the earth who's ever walked this earth has ever suffered like Christ did on the cross. And no one has ever experienced death like Jesus did on the cross. So we can't point to God and say, you don't know, you don't understand, or you're somehow less than fair or less than loving. Because the fact that Christ conquers death for us is at His expense, suffering, futility, and death. So when you're you're tempted... And when your thoughts start to go that direction as they will, remember that Jesus and the Father have experienced futility and suffering and death for your sake in ways you cannot imagine and neither can I. We can't blame God. We can't point to Him and say, you're not good or you're not fair. So my bottom line is this. We need to cultivate an appropriate biblically informed expectation of death in this earth, in this time, Christianity, Christian work, no exception. Everything we do, we need to cultivate a biblically informed expectation of futility and death so that elements of sickness, death, frustration, futility as a relative norm, that's part of our life. Now, briefly just on, uh, not to leave this on what might otherwise sound like a depressing note. Of course, there is a redemptive element of of suffering, isn't there? As Christians, we know that. So, for instance, Job, in Job 23, when Job was still in the midst of his suffering, he said this, He knows the way I take. When he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
Job knows God. He knows God's in it with him. And he says, when I'm done with this suffering, it'll be like gold that's been refined. I will be less what I was in a negative way, and I'll be more of what I should be in a positive way. I'll be like gold that's been refined. That's the same thought in the New Testament. Or in Psalm 90, one of my favorite psalms, this is a psalm Moses wrote. And the backdrop to the psalm is Moses is thinking how short and futile life on the earth is. And with that in view, he says, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That is, if I reflect how short life is and how apparently futile, it allows me to be wise in the way I live out these days I've got on the earth. That's a good thing. And last, this from Romans 8. Uh, Paul knew a thing or two about suffering. Uh, he asked God to be relieved of suffering in 2 Corinthians. God didn't answer his prayer. But he doesn't blame God. And instead, he says this in Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, troubles, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, he's quoting Psalm 44, by the way. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes the Old Testament and says, We Christians, the Roman world looks at us as if we're a flock of sheep that's ready to be slaughtered. This is not a good picture. If you say, Welcome to Christianity, you're a sheep headed for slaughter. Not a pretty picture. But Paul says this, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Or some, some translations say, uh, it's weird. Uh, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors in Christ. And he continues, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says our common experience is suffering. But no matter how intense the suffering, no matter how prolonged the suffering, no matter how discouraging the suffering at various times, nothing can separate you from Christ. And the worst that can happen <clears throat> is that you die and go to heaven forever. Is that you gain immortality with Christ where there's pleasures and joys forevermore. So even if you are a sheep to be slaughtered, you still don't lose. You just go to heaven a little sooner and enjoy Christ's presence a little sooner than you would have otherwise. No loss there. Let me close. I don't know if we'll be able to hear each other singing. Um, let me close with this. Uh, part, of, part of the expectation here on this formula about why, why uh, I'm sure this is the enemy. We will overcome. Um, part of the trouble with our expectations is that we develop an expectation based on this life and an expectation based or restricted to this life, it's just not adequate. Because this life isn't where we really end. It's, it's hardly where we start. We've got eternity to come. So let me close with Jesus' words from Matthew 
6, 19-21. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is what we tend to do. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. This is futility and death. And where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So, think of this again. Just remember, futility, disappointment, frustration, and death, these are elements of everything we do, none of which is ultimately significant in the sense that we're still more than conquerors in Christ. And this reminds us to fix our eyes on something bigger and better than the earth and the job and the family and the expectations I can have for this time and this earth, it reminds me to fix my gaze higher on something that cannot disappoint. That's on Christ in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that no matter what happens to us or in us in this life and on this earth, uh, we are truly more than conquerors because of Your Son. And Lord, thanks that the God who created us also loved us and redeemed us at Your own cost. Lord, help us to rejoice in that boundless love You had for us. Help us not to accuse You of deficiency, Lord, but to revel in Your greatness, Your goodness, and Your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good luck, Sean.